we're going to be diving through a really familiar story today. Um, but first, before we get there, I, I remember the first time I ever went surfing. Uh, we had just moved to Fort Lauderdale, and a storm was coming in, and um, some of the youth that we were working with down there called me up and said, it's time for your first surfing lesson. And we went out to the beach, and the waves were about head high. So uh, they didn't look like giant waves until you get in them. And they took me out, and they were trying to coach me up. And get, like getting through the waves was a lesson in and of itself. I realized how out of shape I was, and I was exhausted. And so as I got up on the surfboard for the first time, uh, I immediately fell and fell into the waves and uh, went all the way down to the bottom and hit the bottom of the ocean and just got into this tumbling cycle. And you've probably heard this before that I didn't know which way was up. And literally it was the first time I'd experienced that I really didn't know which way is up. And I'm, I need oxygen, I need air, and I'm fighting to try to figure out in this wave and, uh, and I drowned and I died on that beach. So that's how the story ends. <laughs> you know, I, I tell that story because it feels like that right now we're in this tumble cycle in the country that we live in, maybe even the world that we live in, and it's really hard to know which way is up. And it, it seems um, crazy how polarizing everybody is becoming. Like, even with corona, with coronavirus, are you a mask wearer? Are you not a mask wearer? Are you somebody who is hyper-quarantining or somebody who doesn't quarantine at all? Are you somebody who believes that this whole thing is a hoax or is this a pandemic that is going to alter our lives for the next 10 years? You know, is this all political and it's all going to be over, you know, after the election? And is the election actually going to be over? Is it going to drag on forever? I mean, this whole virus has seemed to polarize everyone from business owners that are saying, we should be open, we should care more about the economy than we should care about this virus. And then we have people over here that are saying that we should shut down the entire world until this whole, I mean, it's just, are you guys feeling some of that? And are you feeling that you have to have an opinion about it? Are you feeling like that you need to think a certain way? But then let's talk about politics for a minute. Oh, here we go. Here we go. I mean, are you Republican or are you Democrat? Are you independent? Like, what are you? It doesn't matter what you are. You want to talk about polarizing. Do you have an opinion about Trump? Well, it, it just got really quiet in here very quick. I can see behind all your masks. You're like, oh, no, he didn't go there. Like, is Trump a narcissistic egomaniac? Okay, don't answer that question. You have an opinion about that. What about Biden? You have an opinion about Biden? Is Biden really a spy for China? I mean, what is he? And we're seeing in our country this unbelievable extreme polarization. But let me go deeper than that. What do you think about Black Lives Matter? Do you have an opinion about that? Is this a good organization? Is this a bad organization? What is it? What do you think about the LGBTQ community? What do you think about the gay community? What does the gay community think about you? What do you think about Fox News or CNN? Do you read the New York Times or do you read the New York Post? Are you pro-immigrant or are you anti-immigrant? Do you want walls or do you want no walls? Do you want boundaries or no boundaries? Like, you see what I'm saying is that 
We are so polarized, and there's a part of us that wants it. There's a huge part of me that wants to have a me and us. We do. We want to have this us, and for me to have an us, there's got to be a them. Okay, but who are we? You know, we've been studying really since this summer who we are. And when Jesus came, Jesus came to be the first among a new humanity. Jesus was birthing a new nation, a kingdom uh, of people that are priests. This is a kingdom of people who the old is gone and the new has come. This is what Jesus did. And when he birthed us into this kingdom, it wasn't just that he gave us a stamp of citizenship. He literally made us spiritually alive. And, you know, when we're made spiritually alive, it means that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, the Holy Spigot. <clears throat> and it is the Holy Spigot because the spigot is pouring out. Do you remember the movie Aliens, that Ridley Scott? <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> would, it, would it be strange to you to think that the Holy Spirit is living and alive? Something alien outside of you that dwells within you that has already birthed change in you and is already pushing forth the ways of this kingdom and is urging us by faith, join me now. Start to harmonize with the work of the Holy Spirit that's going on already in your life as somebody that's been born into this new kingdom. That is who we are. So let's try to nuance that and let's try to figure out what is the Holy Spirit doing with us as his people during such a polarizing time in our country. Well, we're gonna go back to the Old Testament and remember what we said last week is that the Old Testament, we see that God had rescued his people, the Israelites, out of 400 years of slavery. That is multiple generation after generation after generation after generation of people that all they knew was slavery. And so when he brought them out, he was bringing them out from slavery to the promised land. They were promised people now, meaning they were free. And they had to learn how to live free now. All they knew how to live was slaves, which is very familiar to us. Before we knew Jesus, all we knew was slave living, this world living. And so when the Holy Spirit sets us free, he's got to teach us how to live as free people as a part of his kingdom. Are you with me? This is yes, this is no. Okay, all right, all right, I got you, okay. In Exodus chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments was God's way of urging his people to learn how to live free. And in, chap in chapter 20, verse 13, he says, you shall not murder. Let's stop right there. He's getting down to basics, and he's saying free people don't kill. And he's saying, in, in your freedom now, you're not going to be killers. Now, in Romans chapter 5, it tells us something about the Old Testament law. It says in verse 20 that the law was added so that the trespasses might increase. Wait a minute. That the law was added so that trespasses might increase. In fact, the law was given to us to reveal to us that we can't keep the law. And that very thing within us that we know we cannot keep is pointing us to something else besides ourselves. But what does the law do? Does it stir up murder in me? Because I'm pretty sure that, well, you guys all look like nice people. Let's just show a hands of how many people have actually murdered somebody. Don't, don't, that would be odd if half of you raised your hands. But, it, but Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, I want to take you to the heart of this law, do not murder. He says, you've heard that it was said, this is verse 21, to the people long ago, you shall not murder, 
And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. We get that. That's not hard for us to understand. But then he goes, I tell you that anyone who is angry, anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. All of a sudden, Jesus takes this idea of you shall not be a killer with your hands to you shall not be a killer with your heart. He's saying if you've ever experienced anger toward another person, that's the root of murder. If you've ever judged somebody as being a fool, that's the root of, if if you've ever cussed at somebody, if you've ever done anything that expresses any kind of hatred or anger toward another person, that is the root and the spirit of murder. In Romans chapter seven, verse five, it says, we were controlled by the sinful nature and the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore the fruit of death. As soon as I say to you, don't hate anybody and don't be angry toward anybody, what does it do? It reveals all the hatred that you have and the anger that you have in your own heart toward other people. That's why in Romans 8, and this is verse 3, it says, for what the law was powerless to do, it couldn't set me free to live as free. It says, God sent his own son in the, light of, like of, in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law may be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh, but we live according to the spirit. In other words, when Christ went to the cross for me, he took all my murdering spirits with him and he paid the price. He took the judgment from my murdering heart to the cross and he paid that debt in full to where I am set free now. And when he rose again from the dead, I rose with him to newness of life, which means the life of the spirit that dwells within me that's teaching me how to live a different life now. Not a life of murder, but a life of life. In other words, this kingdom that we've been born into is a kingdom of love. Like Jesus came to overthrow a kingdom, but he didn't overthrow that kingdom by destroying that kingdom and killing. He overthrew the kingdom of this world by coming and laying his life down and letting himself be killed. It's the nature of this kingdom that you've been born into. Even in Luke chapter 12, there's this outrageous story, you ought to go read it, that when a master comes back from a wedding feast and he walks in and he sees all his servants there, he puts on an apron and he serves his servants. And it's a picture of Jesus when he returns. He's coming back, not as the king that will rule with his harsh hand, but a king who comes to serve us. Get your head around that. So see, the Old Testament says, do not kill. And Jesus comes and births a new kingdom and says, I don't want you to kill because what I made you for is to give life. Don't kill. I made you to be a person in this world who is a life giver not a life taker. So what does that look like? Luke chapter 10. This is um, the story that's often called the story of the Good Samaritan um, or the guy who was really unlucky and got beat up, whatever you want to call it. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up. Now, he's an expert in the law. He's from the temple This is not, um, you know, the law like we understand the law of police officers. This was somebody from the temple who understood the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. So an expert of that law stood up to test Jesus, and he said, Teacher, what must I do to to inherit eternal life? 
What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And this expert in the law said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, he told the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for an extra expense you may have. So Jesus then turns to this expert in the law. He says, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So let's try to take this parable apart because I believe that in this context, Jesus is giving us some information about how we're to live as members of the kingdom of Jesus. And this whole parable is about love. I mean, it starts with Jesus asking this man, what is, what is the law? And he says, love God, love your neighbor. There it is. All of scripture is summed up in such a words, love God and love your neighbor. And God tells us that because God is love. And so the story begins where this guy is traveling, this Jewish man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and these robbers, these murderers, these killers jump on him and take everything that he has. And nobody is really shocked by this story. You're not shocked about this story because we know bad things happen to good people. We know that bad things happen to us. And um, when bad things happen to us, then we're looking for who's gonna be our rescuer. Who's going to step into our story? And in this story, here comes the hero. Like, here comes the Superman. Because he's talking to a Jewish man, and he's speaking to a Jewish crowd, and he's telling a story about a Jewish man who falls on hard times. And who's the hero? Here comes the priest, the head of the temple, the, just the icon of the religion of that time. Here he comes. And what does he do? He walks on by. Superman walks on by. Well, if Superman's not going to help him, then maybe Spider-Man's going to help him because the Levite is the second guy in the temple in the order of power. So here comes the Levite, and certainly the Levite's going to help this guy. And what does Jesus do? He allows both the priest and the Levite to walk on by. So you can imagine the crowd that he sp uh, he's speaking to are a little shocked because they're thinking there's no way that would ever happen. And then Jesus does the absolute, unbelievable, unthinkable. He says, and then a Samaritan comes by. So I gotta give you a little context. Um, for Jesus to make the Samaritan the hero of this story, there were few people on the planet that the Jewish community hated more than they hated the Samaritans. Uh, in fact, they had a lot of good reasons to hate the Samaritans. 
And for us to understand who these Samaritans were, we have to go all the way back into the Old Testament and realize um, something, uh, something happened years before Jesus is telling the story. So if you remember, if you've read the Old Testament and you've heard of King David, he's the guy with the stones and the sling and Goliath. Well, he had a son, uh, Bathsheba, um, killed her husband. It's a really awesome, awesome awful story. And they ha he has his son, Solomon. And Solomon becomes one of the wisest men in the world. And uh, he grows the kingdom unbelievably. It's like his business takes off like it's never taken off before. And he dies and he has two boys, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And these guys were not wise like their dad. And so they divided the kingdom in two. And Jeroboam went north and he rallied all 10 of the nations and the tribes of Israel up north. And Rehoboam stayed south where Jerusalem was and he rallied the two nations that were left over, the two tribes. And they were against one another. And the, the heart or the capital city of the northern tribe where Jeroboam was, was Samaria. And in that heart of that city, uh, they started doing horrible things. Like since they couldn't travel south of Jerusalem to where the temple was, they created their own temple. Then they started creating these temples to idols. And then they started rewriting scripture and they started creating their own religion and they started creating their own view of things. And then when the Assyrians came in and invaded the land and took over, the Samaritans decided that they were gonna start marrying the Assyrian women and husbands. And they were, now they were this cross racial breed of people. And then the Southern uh, nation stayed pure, so to speak. And it was, you know, it's this team against this team. And then when there was a resettling of the land after the Babylonians had taken over, the Samaritans came back and took over many of the dwelling places in the southern part of Jerusalem. So the Jews looked on the Samaritans as people who had uh, changed their religion, changed their scripture, changed their laws, was living a lifestyle that they would never approve of, had taken advantage of them being in distress, lied to them, hated them, mistreated them. They had every reason in the world to hate the Samaritans. So let's think about this for a second, okay? Let, let's see if we have any modern day parallel between uh, the Samaritans and the Jews to any group of people that are polarized against each other right now. So the Jews hated the Samaritans because uh, they had a different view of historical rightness. They hated the, the Samaritans because they had a different view of religion. They had, hated the Samaritans because they had a different view of politics. They hated the Samaritans because they had a different view of who deserved what. They hated the Samaritans because they had a different view of who was right in the eyes of God. They hated the Samaritans because they had a different view about who you're allowed to marry and who you're not allowed to marry. They hated the Samaritans because they had a different view of who deserved what in the future. And they hated the Samaritans so much that they blamed the Samaritans and the Samaritans blamed the Jews for why things weren't right in the country. That sound familiar? So Jesus is taking this Samaritan and going, I'm gonna make you the hero of the story. And he's laying an ax at a tree for this community and he's laying an ax at the tree of us too. And what is that ax? 
is that we, as a part of the new humanity, are a community of love. And what does that mean? We are the people that love our enemies. It's the mark of who we are. Do you realize that when Jesus came to go to the cross, he called us, we were his enemies? And yet Jesus loved us so much that he went to the cross for us. And now that we have his spirit dwelling within us, he is saying to us as the community of faith, you love your enemies. In fact, he says it in Matthew 5. You've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who even persecute you. Look at this Samaritan. Because Jesus didn't just make the Samaritan the good guy who comes over and kind of takes care of the guy who's beat up and says, it's going to be okay. Let me call somebody who can help you. He doesn't do that. The Samaritan goes and Jesus starts taking this story and just stretching it. Like, just like to the point of like, come on. I can't even believe that. Look what he does. He gave. Like, he gave, this Samaritan gave to this Jew, his enemy, he gave his time, like he was inconvenienced, he gave his money, like lots of money. Like, he not only put him in an inn and put him up, he also said to the innkeeper, I'm going to come back and cover any cost. If he raids the minibar, don't worry, I got him covered. He gave him comfort. And here's the most important thing. Uh, he gave opportunity to be misunderstood. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second. But think about this for a minute. That may be the most costly. When you love your enemies, that you're, that you're allowing yourself the opportunity to be misunderstood by the people that calls you one of them. Because look what this Samaritan did. He crossed racial lines. He crossed social lines. He crossed financial lines, and he risked his own life to do it. See, when he put that Jew on top of his donkey, what city was he going to? A Jewish city. That's what existed between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he's about to walk into a town, a Samaritan, with a naked Jew on his donkey who's been beat up and rolling him into the city. Do you don't think that was risky? This is a Kenneth Bailey theologian who talks a lot about understanding uh, Scripture through a Middle Eastern eye. He said, let me try to give you some kind of comparison. Imagine you were in 1850, and suppose a Native American found a cowboy with two arrows in his back. So he placed the cowboy in his horse and rode him into Dodge City. After checking into a room over the saloon, the man spent the night taking care of the cowboy. How would the people of Dodge City react to the Native American the following morning when he emerged from the saloon? Most Americans know that they would have probably killed him even though he helped the cowboy. That's the contrast that Jesus is painting for us right now and calling us to at our own risk to love our enemies. That's why if you go back to the story, you realize that the lawyer asked, who's my neighbor? And then at the end of the story, Jesus changes the question. And he said, to, to whom must I become a neighbor? In other words, it wasn't who is my neighbor, it's who am I? Am I a neighbor in the life that I'm living? Am I loving my enemy? So here's where it gets personal. Who's your enemy? 
If you've got a pen and paper, write it down. Who do you hate? Maybe you're a Democrat and you hate anybody who would vote for Trump. You can't understand it. You can't even comprehend it. What kind of idiots would ever vote for that guy? Or maybe you're a Republican and you're like, hey, how can you vote for a Democrat? No Christian should ever vote for a Democrat. Like, who do you hate? Who's on the other side of them for you? Is it during this coronavirus? Is it the people that are wearing masks or the people that aren't wearing masks? I was in Baja Burrito the other day, and I gotta tell you, you know, I kinda, I'm kinda like, hey, I get the social rules, you know, six feet, six feet, and I'm waiting in line, and I'm honoring the six feet in front of me, and uh, this couple came in behind me, and she, she, I could feel her breath on my neck, and I'm going, hey, hey, well, I'm inside, I'm going, six feet, six feet, six feet. And I don't think it had anything to do with the coronavirus. It had everything with me, the sense of fairness in me. If I'm having to do it, you have to do it. Is it, is it the way you view the protests that are happening in the streets? Is it how you view people that are voting, that are protesting um, the police and their brutality, the George Floyd? Is it how you view Black Lives Matter? Or maybe you're pro Black Lives Matter and it's how you view people that aren't out on the streets marching with you. It may be that, that your enemy is the gay community, that you're convinced that there's no way that you can be gay and be a Christian. Or maybe you're gay and you're looking at the straight community. Or, or maybe you just watch Fox News all the time and you cannot believe that anybody believes the lies on CNN. Or you watch CNN all the time and you can't believe people watch the propaganda of Fox News. I don't know. Who, for you, who is it? Who is it? So let me just say something that we all know, okay? And if I haven't stepped on you yet, I'm trying to step on you, okay? And, and I'll tell you because the chances that you're gonna find a half-naked, beat-up Jew between here and your home today are probably pretty slim. All right, and this story is not like, hey, here's how to prepare, prepare you if you happen to be traveling with a donkey and you find somebody who's been beat up and they're naked, all right? What Jesus is trying to say is, I'm trying to teach you how to love your enemies. And I'm trying to teach you how to love your enemies because that's the spirit inside of you that's doing that and the spirit is saying, by faith, come and join me. And so I wanna give you just three questions that I want you to ask um, and then we're done. And this is, these three questions, um, I gotta tell you that I stole them from David Beener, who has written a number of books that I've enjoyed. Um, and one of the books that he has written is Soulful Spirituality, and this he talks about the love for our enemy. And I got this from Peter Scazzaro's podcast, and you may be familiar with Peter Scazzaro. He wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's a book that we've used around Midtown a lot. It's really um, good about how to grow emotionally and also spiritually. And he was talking about this this week and he was quoting David Beener. And so I'm stealing it from both these guys. Does that make sense? So I wanna give them full credit. The first question that I have to ask myself when it comes to loving my enemies is am I engaged or am I distracted? What that means is it, when I'm with somebody who is of them, am I engaged with them? or am I distracted while I'm with them? 
And what that means is, and what Beener is talking about, and what I want us to grasp is, am I so distracted by my counterpoints and the rightness of my position with this person? If I'm so distracted with how I'm going to answer whatever point they bring up that I am unwilling to engage with them, do I see them as a person or do I see them as points of view that I don't agree with? And this is really critical. This is really important because we as Christians know among all other people is that all people were created in the image of God. Everyone has the image of God implanted on them. And there's honor in that. And there's beauty in that. There's glory in that. And for us to step into somebody's life and begin to see that. In fact, it's a curiosity about who they are. One of my, one of my good friends is... Uh, He's kind of semi-retired Jewish professor at Vanderbilt. I'm, I, don't, I don't know. He does a lot of stuff at Vanderbilt now. I'm not sure that he's a full professor anymore. But uh, we're as different as you could possibly be. And I love being around this guy. Uh, we have different views on religion. We have different views on politics. We have different views. Like, it's just fun to be around him because I'm immensely curious about his humanity and who he is. Because when he begins to tell me what life was like for him when he was a, like a kid growing up in New York City, poor, and how he came from that to become a professor and to author books and to be a thinker that helps shape the way that we think about humanity in America, I am immensely, I'm just, I have such admiration and such respect for him. And so the first challenge for you is the question, are you engaging or are you distracted? And I want to encourage you that with the help of the Holy Spirit that you be engaging. The second question is, are you loving or are you judgmental? Peter Scazzaro says that we are all judgeaholics, that we judge about everything. I judge you about your politics. I judge you about your clothes. I judge you about your job. I judge you about your education. I judge you about the music you listen to. I judge you about the culture that you've come from or the culture that you're a part of. I judge you about your religion. I judge you about your attitudes when you're waiting in line at Baja Burrito. I judge you about how you drive or how you don't drive, which is many people in Nashville. I judge you about your family, how you treat your family, how your family treats you. I judge you about your kids. I judge you through your kids. I judge you about your home, what your home looks like, what it smells like. How clean is it? How unclean it is? I judge you about how much money you have, how much money you don't have. I judge you about your choice of recreations. I judge you about your choice of food. I can judge you about everything, including politics. I can judge you about all of this. And it's something that we all have been birthed with the gift of. Like, there is not a person in here that doesn't have this, well, I was going to call it the spiritual gift. Should I call it the unspiritual gift of criticism? It takes no creativity whatsoever to criticize. Zero. Like, if you want to watch somebody do something beautiful and do something that's artistic, that takes talent. You know what it takes to destroy that? Zero talent. And that's what judgment is. Judgment is destruction. And we have the capability to do it because a lot of it comes out of our fear, our fear of self-protection, our fear of, I've got to have walls around me. I've got to figure you out quick so that I can protect myself from you. Instead of saying, I don't have to protect myself in that way. I can actually love you. 
And let me give you one way. If you didn't pick up, it's the prayer of Francis of Assisi. Do you want to know how you can be loving and not judging? One simple way. Wow. Would you tell me more about that? The curiosity that leads me to listen. To be with my enemies and actually be an instrument of peace. Instead of hatred, I'm sowing love. Instead of despair, I'm bringing hope. Instead of darkness, I'm bringing light. Instead of sadness, I'm bringing joy. Because I'm willing to listen. We were on a motorcycle trip, and I don't even know what town in North Carolina we were in, but my buddy and I pulled over. We were kind of lost, and we were, we were looking for, you know, just any kind of directions on good places to ride, and this guy was walking out to his truck, and we stopped, and we said, hey, man, can you tell us where we are? And he came over, and he says, well, yeah, I can tell you where you are. And he said, actually, I got a map in my truck. Let me pull it out. And he's just, he's just going over. He's a good Samaritan. Like, he's just going over, just giving us maps and directions. And um, I said, man, that's really kind of you. And I did this. What is your story? And he stepped back, and he goes, hmm, this is a small town. He goes, wow, what's my story? Well, let me think about it. He says, well, a couple years ago, my wife ran off with my brother and they joined the circus. I'm not kidding you. I said, pull up a chair. We're not going anywhere because I'm immensely curious. And wow, he began to tell the story of just his life of pain and sorrow and betrayal and how he had chosen now to stay in this small town because he has dedicated his life to a handful of elderly people that can't make it without him, him helping them. This guy was a massive servant. He was beautiful. And it all came from being curious. What makes them the way they are? How did they come to that conclusion? What story do they have to tell? Is there beauty in that story? It's hard to judge somebody when you start hearing their heart. The final question is, am I open or am I closed? And this may seem like a small thing. And I'm, I'm about to wrap up our time here. It just simply means, it, will I dare to position myself in, in a posture of, I, I can learn from you? Am, am I open that maybe God wants to teach me something from you and from your life. It's one of the most powerful things to receive from another person. There's a good friend of mine who 35 years ago, him and his family moved into the Edge Hill community. And the Edge Hill community was very different than what it is right now. And it was almost 100% African-American community, very poor, struggling. And he had come from Jackson, Mississippi to start a ministry up there. And uh, he just could not make any headway, couldn't build any relationships. Nobody was really interested. And one day he was uh, using a heat gun to loosen up the paint on the front of his house uh, so he could scrape it off. He was trying to repaint his house and he caught his house on fire. And uh, it burned the whole front of his porch. And he was sitting in his front yard prophetic and, and just exhausted and defeated uh, and it was in that place that the neighbors came over and said, oh, you need our help. And that watched, what launched Salama ministry that's still going today. It was his need 
not his ability to step into somebody else's need. Are you open or closed? So let me just close with this. It may seem like a very small thing that you're sitting in this room with just 50 people, or you're at home and you're sitting in a living room with 10 people, or you're sitting at home by yourself watching this video, and this coronavirus has really messed up everything we knew to be true a year ago. And it may seem like a really small thing, and I don't want you to miss that it's a very big thing. You know, when I hear people say that, that this election season may be the most important election ever, that, that may be true, or that, you know, that this is the hinge that all of America is gonna swing on, maybe, maybe that's true, I don't know, I'm not a prophet. I just know that real change, powerful change, lasting change starts right here, with you, with you. You believing that you're a part of a kingdom that is marked by love, and you believing that so much that you can move toward a them with love. That as you move toward them, and you're going, you know what? I'm moving toward them to engage, not disengage. I'm moving toward them to be loving and not judgmental. I'm moving toward them to be open and not closed. That it might just actually be that that changes the world. So I remember the first time that I heard the story of Immaculate. I don't know if you've ever heard of Immaculate. I'll get her last name probably wrong. Ila Beguza. Immaculate um, has written several books, but back in 1994, um, there was um, something that happened. They call it the 100 Days of Slaughter. In the country of Rwanda, uh, there were two tribes. There was a boy, big time us and them, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And there was a lot of political conflict and there was a lot of dividing up and a lot of finger pointing. And I'll get the details wrong, but I think it was the Hutu president that uh, his plane went down and the Hutus blamed the Tutsis for that. And they rallied their people and the Hutus had most of the police force and the military and they went on a hundred day slaughter. It was a genocide where nearly a million people in a hundred days were killed. I think it was closer to 800,000 people. And a lot of them were killed in hand to hand with like machetes and knives. It was brutal, neighbors against neighbors killing one another. And Immaculate was a young girl and saw her mother being murdered by their neighbor. And her and her friends ran to uh, the local church and to the priest, and they hid in his bathroom. And she tells the story of how the soldiers came and searched the house. She said it was the strangest thing. They were in the bathroom praying, just God protect us. And the soldiers searched the house numerous times over those hundred days. They would come in every four or five days and never looked in the bathroom. Like never once did they open the bathroom. She said, if they would have opened the door, we were right there, we'd have been done for. And they never did. So after that was all over, and if you can go, you can go read about it, um, even in her book, there was a lot of, of work toward healing and reconciliation. And Immaculate had the opportunity to confront the man who killed her mother, who she saw kill her mother. And he was in prison, and so they brought her in, um, and I'll share her words. I wasn't quite sure whether I was still gonna feel forgiving toward him. 
I might look at it and change my mind. But then the narrator says, but once they were face to face, she said the forgiveness all became normal. She asked him, how could you have done this? Killed so many people. You can't be at peace. He was in rags. He seemed small and confused. And she said, I wanted to reach out to him. I cried. And then him himself started to cry. And she forgave him. But I want, to, I want you to hear there was somebody watching. It was the, the official in charge of the jail. And he was a survivor like a Macaulay. And he was present during the meeting, and he grew angry, saying, how can you do this? How can you forgive the killer of your own mother? Are you crazy? And he gave her permission to slap him and spit on him, but she refused. Instead, her act of forgiveness began to affect the official himself. Later, she heard that he had said, I will never forget that woman. And while he was working at the United Nation office in Kilgali, the capital, the officer came to her and he said, you don't know what you did to me. When you went to the jail and forgave that man, I was shocked. But he had learned from her that this encounter was necessary for forgiveness. And I read that story to say, is it possible that a Macaulay, just this unknown woman who survived horrific slaughter, forgiving some unknown man in a small prison, has made its way to here today? And that that one person willing to see their enemy as a human and as a person willing to engage and bring love and also openness to them. That brought change to that one officer and is it possible it's bringing change to us today? And what I'm saying is, is it possible us being that way in our city, in our state, in our country right now can bring the same change? I believe so. Let's pray. Lord, Father, would you now lead us into that place where we harbor our own prejudice and our own hatred, where we self-protect and walk on the other side of the road, soften our heart by your spirit that came to us while we were yet your enemies and lead us in your way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So friends, we're about to take communion and it's appropriate on today like today that we take communion because this right here is God moving toward us. And so I want to remind you that it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed by his enemies uh, that he took the bread and he took the wine and he said, this is my body broken for you, for you. And this is my blood spilt for the remission of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And I want to encourage you because um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about that, that when we come to this, what we need to do is examine ourselves. And that examination is talking about that we search our own heart and confess the things within us that are not consistent with the kingdom of God that came and rescued us. So what we're going to do, um, our worship team is going to lead us in this, is that we're going to take the bread together, and then I'm going to encourage you to take the wine on your own. 
but when we take the bread, what we're gonna do is just use that time to confess. Confess the ways that we have become more like the world than we've become like the kingdom of God, where we have uh, become closed to our neighbor or to our enemies, where we have uh, harbored judgment and hatred, where the spirit of murder has led us more than the spirit of love. And so we're gonna use that time just to confess that to the Lord. And we don't confess so that we get fresh forgiveness. When Christ went to the cross for you, he removed all your sins. You know, what repentance does is it returns us back to the sanity. You know, the insanity of going away from our Lord, repentance brings us back to the sanity of his love for us. And then when we come to the wine, then we're gonna remember his tremendous grace for us, his love for us, that not only affects us, but also affects others through us. So let us pray. Lord, we come to you now and um, just wanna pause and confess our need for your grace. Pause and confess, Lord, um, the murdering spirit that has been within each of us where we have judged, we have ridiculed, we have harbored hatred, that we have found uh, false security in us and them, where we have lobbed our hand grenades of ridicule, where we have judged people because they are not like us, where we have so convinced ourselves that we are right and in our rightness we can treat other people however we want in our heart. Hear our confession, Lord.